Hello and welcome to the Megaphone Podcast. Today we have the fourth and the last episode of the second season and if you bear with me, there is going to be a little surprise. My name is Jakub and I will be your host during this audition. Through this podcast, we aim to show you new trends, threads and solutions which are made by civic activists all around the world. We look for things which were not discussed before, bringing you knowledge and inspiration for your work. In this episode, I'm going to introduce two people. First, our guest, Verda Uya. Verda completed her BA degree in Sociology and Media and Communications double major program from Istanbul Bilgi University as of 2018 and currently pursuing her MA in Social Policy at Bogaziti University. She attended Political Science and International Relations courses at Sciences Po Paris. Before and during her bachelor degree, she participated in several journalism programs, including one at the European Forum, and completed her first internship at Hurriyet Newspapers International News Services. She is currently working as an editor at Turkey's first political fact-checking website, Togruluk Pai, and as a research assistant at Social Policy Forum. Her research interests include political communication, social inequality, and minority rights. And I also want to welcome Alicia Peszkowska, who is the director of Outriders Network. And she will be the one, as I said in the beginning, the surprise, she will be the one actually conducting the interview together with Verda. So I leave you to it and see you in the next season. Hi. Hi. If you could introduce yourself. Yes, of course. Uh, well, first, thank you uh, beforehand starting for inviting me here. I'm Varda. I'm from Turkey. I have been working as a fact checker uh, in Turkey's first political fact checking organization, and it's called Doruluk Payı. And besides my work there, I'm actually still a student. I'm an MA student in Istanbul. I'm studying social policy in Boston University, and I'm also working as a research assistant at the university as well. What was your path to becoming a fact checker and a researcher at the same time? How, how did it happen? Well, uh, ever since I've known myself, I always wanted to become a journalist, actually. It's maybe because of the passion that my dad had, because he is also a graduate from uh, the journalism faculty. And he actually couldn't become one uh, because he graduated during 1980s and 1980s in Turkey. It was actually the time where there was a really political Uh, oppositions, you know, there were a lot of tensions and we also had uh, a military coup uh, during those years. So he couldn't start his uh, profession, maybe because uh, to feel what he actually wanted to do in life, I have always wanted to become a journalist. So uh, when I was at the um, uh, at the university do, uh, during my bachelor degree, I started my first journalism internship at one of the best known and the most consumed uh, Turkish newspaper outlet, it was Hurriyet. And I uh, contributed as an intern there for the International News Service. And uh, during my time there, I realized something was not going correct, that 
there were a lot of misinformation that was provided to the society and there were a lot of um, information that had to be corrected by the journalists themselves, but they were not doing it. So I realized also as someone that was coming from a critical perspective, a critical background, I decided that I had to t uh, have another take on journalism So I found out that there was something called fact-checking in Turkey. I, I realized that Doğruluk uh, Payı, the organization, was present in Turkey and I applied there as an intern during the summer of 2017 and it was just as every other intern. I didn't know if I was going to get in. I just sent my CV. I said I had no idea how to do fact-checking but I just... Uh, find it as a really valuable profession to be doing in Turkey considering the overall circumstances. So I applied there. I started as an intern and after six months they offered me to stay more. So I started to contribute as a part-time editor. Now due to my studies and my assistant uh, position in the university, I'm not going there part-time or either full-time, but I am contributing as a volunteer. So uh, I can say that even though it's not my actual profession anymore, it's it's something that I want to keep doing all the time. And you've mentioned the specific circumstances mm -hmm. of Turkey. Mm -hmm. And fact-checking is a very important job all over the world, especially now. But mm -hmm. how is it to be a fact-checker in Turkey? Well, um, before starting, actually, I had to persuade my parents that I wasn't going to get arrested. I can start by saying that um, when I told them that I, I got this job, that I was accepted for an intern position at a fact-checking organization, they immediately asked me, like, um, who is the owner or um, how do you know that if it is, it's an independent organization? Or they asked me whether if there are some legal cases that have been opened against the organization. And I had to persuade them by saying that what I will be performing, it's actually real journalism. Like I would be taking the information and fact-checking it and giving it back to the society so that they will be consuming that information based on the truth and they will be uh, constructing a public opinion on that. Uh, I think it's it's something that has to be done like in, in nature. Like we we weren't supposed to be putting so much, you know, extra effort to establish that. Because I, I think it's it's a it's a journalism task to be doing it actually. But since um the journalists are not doing it and that's also one of the other circumstances that I was trying to, you know, uh, mention upon. And uh, I had to, as I said, persuade my parents. So they let me eventually, but Like every time an article of mine is published in the website, like my my friends or my family, they always keep saying that they're concerned, you know, like they are 
they keep saying that they're concerned that it will be blocking my future, you know, that, like they say that your name is on the internet now and you have written articles that is falsifying important political figures or like the president or the prime minister, but we don't have any prime minister anymore. And I would say, I wouldn't say that it's falsifying the political actor. I insist saying that it's their obligation to be telling the truth. So my mission is to uh, make the society and the political actors remember that mission. So that that's how it's going. Have you ever felt in danger, though, or any of your colleagues? Did you ever feel it? Were you in a dangerous situation? Well, I never felt in, in danger, but whenever we publish a content on our website or we share it from our um, social media accounts, uh, a lot of, of our followers, they, they comment under the content and they would say, for example, oh, the, the editor is going to be uh, imprisoned. Well, look what they are doing. They're criticizing the government or they would, you know, make fun of us doing that job. I never felt, as I said, in danger, but I know that even people that are reading us are aware that it's a really tough job to be doing, in, uh, especially in Turkey. I should mention that, that we don't have any incident where a legal case had been opened to Dorlukpayı because we're objective and it's for the benefit of all parts. Like if a political actor is disseminating a false information one day, if he or she um, shares a true information the other day, we can also verify them. So it's actually also for their benefit to have their opinion heard by the content that we have written on them and that by the content that we share. So um, in terms of legally binding cases, we didn't have any, but we, I can say, ha have incidents where we received some threat-like messages, like direct messages or mails from political figures, but that was the the highest that it went. And how much of what you verify is the content that you take from the internet, like it's online mm -hmm. work? Is is your work mostly online? How did the you know how did the internet change? Hmm. Uh, we know we all we know that it has amplified the it has amplified lies and fake news and people are atomized in smaller groups and they just listen to their echo chambers. But I just wonder, how does it affect your work from the beginning to an end? So from finding this information and then trying to distribute the, the truth. Mm -hmm. So maybe I can try to explain that by um, telling our daily routine, like how we are working. So... Um, and the very like first thing we do in the morning is to do some basic media check. Like we try to see what's going on in the country at that moment. And we are actually lucky that something is happening every day. So we don't have any day where we editors at the office, we would be like looking at each other saying like, we don't have any agenda today. Like no one have any statement or nothing important or, you know, like considerable happened in the country. No, we, are, we don't have that because Every day something important uh, happens that we need to uh, either analyze or fact check or either write some extensive articles on. So we just do some basic media analysis. We try to 
understand what's happening at that day, like which political figure either has a meeting, either has a speech, or either uh, there is going to be an opening somewhere, opening of um, an hospital, a bridge, a road, or, you know, uh, a school. And at each of those events, a political actor is always present, talking about, you know, their policies, their politics, and their, they like to talk too much. Actually, I would say Turkish politicians, they talk a lot. So we have a lot of materials, you know. And we try to, uh, you know, tr uh, track their speeches. And then we have a Google group. We have a Google um, mail group. And then we share what we find during those media analysis and we share it with each other asking who would like to take that you know statement and what do you think like someone said that uh, and we try to you know uh, pitch ideas together working together and uh, that was actually what Dorluk Pay was based on when it first started but then we came into realization that we can't go like further only doing this you know like because when you think about it it's it's the essence of politics you know like the politicians they they know that they're not always obliged to tell the truth like i believe that they're they're obligated to always tell the truth but to keep on you know to keep on their hands their um their voters and also to attract further potential voters they you know they would give manipulative or exaggerated or out of context information or you know like statements every day and i think it's an essence of the politics and turkish politicians they do that really well so in terms of our impact in terms of our long long term impact even though we take that as a mission as organization i think it's a really hard job to you know change the perceptions of the society but I would really like to understand if someone, for example, after consuming our articles or our fact checks, if they're changing their voting behavior, like if they're realizing that the particular political figure or the political party that I have been voting for a lot of years or, you know, a lot of time is actually, um, you know, not telling the truth, is actually hiding the true information, the that data-based information from me and that they're actually giving false information to me and that in the in the next elections they're changing their vote their voting behaviors, you know. So I think it would be really valuable if we would be able to, you know, like to evaluate if we have such an impact. So yeah. And Who do you? Who is your target audience? Who are you mainly talking to, interacting with, and is it mainly you announcing that uh, the given statement was false, or do you also interact and try to explain? Like, how deep do you go into the conversations with your audience? Well, our target audience—it's mostly the youth, but I think it can be explained partially by their um, usage of social media. Because I think, even though we are based on our own website, our organization website, we always share content using our Facebook and Twitter, and now we are increasingly on Instagram. Also, referring back to your previous question, and we are also now on YouTube. So, considering the um, the age group that uses the most these platforms, we are addressing to the youth. 
But we have also a lot of followers from different age groups as well. And in terms of a specific political orientation, I cannot tell one because depending on who you are falsifying or verifying, we have a lot of comments and a lot of reactions coming from really different political orientations. So I can say it's maybe 50-50% or um, it's like... I don't know. We, it's it's really important that we are not only focused on a specific particular group. And it's also actually the reason that we uh, prefer the terminology verifying and falsifying. For example, a lot of people are asking us the statement that you fact-checked from, for example, the president. It's obviously a lie. So why are you, aren't you labeling it a lie? But as I said, we are an objective organizations. So it's not our mission to actually come into conclusion that the president is lying or not. We just try to analyze the statement in terms of its truth, in terms of the data that it it possesses, if it's true or not. So it's not us that can that can label it as a lie or not. And it's also the reason that we use this preference in terms of our terminology is also to refer to those that are pro-government. Because when you are working in such uh, an organization, the first thing they would think is that, okay, so it's a civil society, so, you know, it's it's against the government. But it's not, you know, our 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 mission to either, like, criticize or be against one of the parts. We want to include all of the political parts and we want to include all of their waters and you know all of their uh, all of the society that they are addressing you know so that we can impact the general public i think it's it's great that you are using so new media so much and that mm -hmm. you are on youtube as well because mm -hmm. i think this is where politics has moved is just that many people did not realize that and that's not going to pass it's just mm -hmm. going to be reinforced with a uh, with mm -hmm. people with younger users growing up and and uh, entering politics you know and so i think this is great and i would like you to maybe tell me a little bit more about what is your content there okay so as i mentioned Already we are doing, you know, like daily media analysis and then we fact check uh, the statements by the political actors. And like in recent years, in last recent years, we also started to fact check the tweets that have been tweeted by the political actors. And it's actually one of the impacts that the changing technology and changing usage of Internet uh, had impacted our work. Because previously we would just, you know, uh, we would watch live TV channels and, you know, like broadcasts and we would try to capture statements from there. But now we have a growing number of fact checks we have done by the tweets that have been tweeted by the political actors. And um, for example, maybe some of the listeners know that one of the political leaders is actually imprisoned the representative of the HDP party Demirtas and the only way now that he can communicate his message his politics to his audience is through his tweets but uh, for example since he has now limited usage of you know like communicative mediums he doesn't like give 
place to a lot of statements in his t tweets that can be fact-checked because, as I said, he has limited use. So this have, for example, impacted us because now we can only give, you know, like less space to him, for example. And also in terms of the mainstream media, they are giving, you know, more place to the to the political figures and political actors from the ruling party. And since they are under control and under, under censorship, I can say, by the government itself. So it's really hard to find statements from the opposition figures. So that's why it was really crucial for us to engage more in using different platforms because people are really having trouble with... Um, accessing information regarding the opposition party, like regarding information from of their political promises before the elections and, you know, their speeches, they're not live broadcasted, they're not, you know, given place in uh, news outlets that are organized by the me mainstream media in Turkey. So alternative media really should rely on giving voice to all of the parts and, we understood that this can't be only done by written articles, you know. And the best way, as you know, to reach a greater audience is by video. So that's why now we are more into, you know, creating video content, like visual content, infographics, like little documentary, like, you know, eight, ten minutes, you know, informative, extended, you know, documentary movies, I also done a video format on myself uh, last year. We started a podcast, a video podcast, I would say, called Bülten Artı. It, it means bulletin in Turkish. So there in three, four minutes, I would do extensive research on the on the hot topic of the week. And I would try to explain it in basic terms so that everyone would understand it like it it would range from topics such as inflation or you know like elections women's rights and labor day and stuff like that so i would be presenting on screen and i would try to explain the topic so that everyone come everyone be familiar with it but i would How many views yeah the views they were not too much because then we came into another conclusion. People just don't want to see talking heads anymore, you know. And that's actually what politics is about, you know. Like we in Turkey, I'm I'm really like, you know, fed up seeing talking heads, you know, and especially talking men on screen. They would, you know, talk about politics, about stuff every day on the screen. And people just don't want it anymore, in my, in my opinion. Like they want to see something from everyday life, from everyday people, something they're more familiar with other than, you know, someone talking on on screen, giving information. So that's why now we are doing more video content where our video producers are on the screen. So we are doing interviews with people. We are recording from the street. We are trying to, you know, combine data and data seems like something like really, you know, like big, like people are afraid of it. But we try to combine it with, you know, like views and opinions from the everyday life. And we started a new uh, YouTube series and we have done three episodes so far and we will be continuing doing that. Because as I said, we understood that 
it's the most efficient way to deliver your message. And I think we are improving ourselves in each episode and we are doing a really good job. I, I really I really think it's amazing that uh, you are also being so flexible. So you mm -hmm. have a clear mission, but but you're trying to reach the people also. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you, was there a moment in which you felt very successful? Like, you know, that you have managed to convince someone or you actually, you made some kind of a change. I'm not sure how you perceive it, but when did you feel real proud? Yes, so I can give you a concrete example, actually, of a time where political figures changed their statements after our fact-checking. I think it is the best way to measure your success as a fact-checking organization, seeing that the political actor that you fact-checked actually changed their statement to the truth. So it happened in, um, if I recall correctly, in 2016. So, you know, OECD, they, they publish reports uh, about, you know, like country reports and They, you know, give detailed information about specific topics. So in one of the OECD reports, as I said, if I recall correctly, in 2016, it was talking about Turkey becoming a developed country, coming out of the developing country label in 2030. And it was written as a scenario, you know, like they were envisioning a 2030 OECD countries and they were envisioning Turkey as a developed country. So after the report was published, the next day, all over the Turkish newspapers and uh, in the statements of the political figures, it was written as if we now, in the day, at that year, we have became a developed country. And it was all over the really like well-known Turkish newspapers. And people started to believe that we were actually not a developing country anymore, but we actually became a developed country. And, you know, they were telling it as a success of the politics, of the, you know, the ruling party. And then we, of course, we went through the report and we saw that, no, it's not correct. It was just written as a future envision, you know, like it, it's it was written as a futuristic scenario. And I don't know if it was written and if it was manifested in the newspapers or by the political actors like that due to, you know, language barrier. Maybe they didn't understand that it was a future scenario. But like we don't know the intention, but still it was a really important misinformation. So we debunked it. And after that, the political actors that used that misinformation, they changed their um, statements. And actually the newspapers that gave place to the misinformation in their in their outlets, they, they called us actually and they referred to us in their new statements. So it was a success. And we also have another story. It's regarding the um, a tunnel that was established in Turkey again in 2016. So it's the Eurasia Tunnel, Avrasya Tuneli, we say in Turkish. So it's a tunnel underground that connects Europe and Asia. And at the opening ceremony of that tunnel, the prime minister of the time, who is also the candidate for Istanbul local elections for the, uh, for the mayor, He said that he is today opening the most 
like the most deepest. the deepest mm. the deepest tunnel in the entire world okay <laughs> yes they, the political actors in turkey they just you know like to use the word the most you know like mm. it's the biggest airport or it's you know the deepest tunnel it's the truth <laughs> like uh, yeah. trump says like I mean, he uses all of these things as well yeah it's been very popular to just mm -hmm. call everything great and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i think it's invest. a way they want to uh you know like maintain their legitimacy but it wasn't actually it turned out the deepest tunnel and we found out that that tunnel so uh, as i remember it's in sweden it's actually the deepest tunnel and it's even more long so it's longer than our tunnel and it was established it was constructed for less money and it's actually free free of charge to use that tunnel so considering that eurasia tunnel is not the deepest and it's not the longest and it's also i would say exp an expensive one mm -hmm. and people uh, criticize it for that a lot of times so we published a video comparatively showing the two tunnels and it was the first time that we reached more than 1 million views and 1 million Facebook interactions and probably because of that the prime minister changed his statement saying that it's not the deepest tunnel so it's it's again another success story for us and tell me did you see any did you notice any patterns i mean like and spread because of because of many reasons and you know sometimes it's just stupidity sometimes it's some kind of a political calculation manipulation but do you think that there is some kind of an information war that you're you know some kind of an org organized uh, lie spreading and, or intercepting the information network coming from from the government or maybe from foreign powers is there a lot of foreign influence uh, in this in this regard in turkey do you see any patterns basically well in terms of information war i would say twitter bots it's really an issue in turkey as well there are a lot of um hoax images and information that is circulating in social media and as i said we are the political fact checking organization but thanks to other organizations in turkey we have also some other fact checkers that they are working to particularly debunk those images in the social media and i would say it's really rather a very organized one i'm not sure if like similar to those that are conducted in other countries whether those bots or misinformation on the social media actually has an impact on the voting behavior in turkey I would say no because I would say rather in Turkey the the voting behavior in in the country it's less you know changeable you know it's because it's more based on identity politics and you know like party politics of the identities of the conflicting identities so I would say it's it's not that you know shattering and that flexible as in other countries But from the political actor side, I would say, yes, there is, again, an organized information war. And as I mentioned earlier, I think they're doing that so just to be doing politics. You know, they know that that's the way they can do politics and they can, you know, 
attract to a greater audience and make them, you know, vote for them. And it's actually interesting because the voting turnout in Turkey, it's really high, like compared mm-hmm. to other countries. It's in average, it's like 86, like 85, 86. Very high. It, it is very high. And I think... In Turkey, there is no way that you can not be like involved in politics, you know, like it it constitutes our everyday conversations with our friends, with our family, like everything is politics. So and when everything is politics, everything is, you know, like suspicious. And that's why I would say there is an organized, you know, uh, information war. But I can't really say that it's it can be associated with a particular political party, you know, because it's the essence of politics. So probably most so of them. So everyone plays this game. Everyone plays this game, yeah. And even the very ordinary citizens, you know, like very ordinary social media Consciously or, uncon- or unconsciously? Well, it, it depends. And I think that's what makes us distinguish between misinformation and fake news, fake news, you know, because the intention we cannot always talk about an intention. Like mm-hmm. I even see my, for example, my parents using, you know, some hoax news on their, you know, like social media accounts. Like my my mom would text me saying that, oh, you know, this, this, this happened. Like there's a new law in the country now, you know, like they are doing this and they're doing that. And I would say, Like, where did you get that information, mom? And she would say, oh, a friend of mine, like, sent that to me. Like, I saw an image on Facebook, you know. I would say, yeah, mom, but you should, you know, like, you shouldn't believe what you see on the internet and what your friends are texting you, you know. And do you think that there is some kind of a generational gap? I, this is another thing I wanted to ask you that... I'm not sure uh, how is your team built, uh, but you seem to be very fluent uh, in new media. And I'm just thinking, like, is the change coming with media literacy? Would you say that young people are more or less media literate uh, in the in the Turkish context? Because it's hard to say for for the world. Yes, I would say that there is a generational gap because, uh, for example, I, I studied during my bachelor both sociology and journalism, and we had particular courses related with media literacy. We would have courses on how to, for example, consume social media, you know, and how social media is, is should be regarded from a critical perspective as well, you know. And... Um, It's not only that, but also the the political conjuncture in the country, it also forces us to be media literate, you know, because we had the protests in 2013. And uh, during those protests, the Gezi Parker protests, we understood that there was a problem with the media, you know, like there was one night, for example, people gathering on the streets, they would be, you know, protesting the the current movements of the government, they would be criticizing the policies of the government. But very well known newspaper outlets will be covering nothing, you know, they would be airing something else completely out of the context, you know, as if nothing like that was happening in the country, you know. And the only medium that we, for example, communicated with each other was through Twitter. Sometimes even Twitter or, you know, social media outlets would be blocked and we wouldn't be accessing them. And that's actually when we realized that, you know, political movements and communication now relied more than ever on the Internet and social media. 
And you said before that in Turkey everything is politics. And I just wonder, I wanted to I wanted to mention this this report, the Reuters report of from 2018, the one that stated that Turkey is a country where the the biggest amount of people actually feels like they're exposed to to fake news and misinformation. What do you think? What what does it say about about Turkey and about how it is? Well, I would read that data from two points. First, it shows that there is a really big issue because as I remember, it was 49% of the population that declared that they have been exposed to, I have to underline, completely made up stories mm-hmm. in the last week. So that that's the point that we should be focusing. But on the other hand, it's actually a good thing that they are aware of that they are, you know, watching and that they are exposed to completely made up stories. Because I think there's also a considerable percentage of the population that's is still not aware that what they are watching or what they're reading is complete fake news, you know. So I actually would believe that the percentage in reality can be actually even higher than what is Uh, explained in that uh, Reuters report. And I was also wondering, how do you think this high level of frustration translates or not to the interest in what you're doing? You know, like, is it is it easy? Was it easy to gain the community of followers? How big is the community now? Okay. So I should say that it wasn't really easy in the first place. Because when we were established in 2014, we basically started out of scratch, you know, like we were the first political fact-checking organization. The term was really, you know, new for us. And there was a growing body of literature, you know, using words like we are living in the post-truth era. And like, you know, we were trying to understand what was going on, you know. And it was at that time hard to engaged to the audience and it was also hard for them to understand our effort because we for long have been accustomed to polarized media outlets. They were established as if they were either pro the government or not. And when we were established, we were giving voice to all parts. So people were quite confused, you know, like they would ask and they are still asking like, so who are you supporting And it's hard to explain and it's hard for them to understand. And I understand actually that, that we are an objective organization and that we are not necessarily partisan, you know, like we are not necessarily obligated to either support the government or not. You know, we just want to give voice to all of them and you will decide, you know, that that's actually the mission. Like we want you to understand that there is such a problem in the country and we as the general public, we also have the responsibility to demand truth-based political environment in country and politicians have the responsibility to provide so. Mm-hmm. So... It was hard to, you know, make the public to come come into terms with a new concept, you know, an objective civil society, you know, trying to be nonpartisan and objective. But over time, uh, I think they understood our methodology because we are a transparent organization. Like we are, of course, based on principles of 
transparency and objectivity and all of our followers or the general public when they go into our website we publish our sources of funding and we publish our code of principles that we're operating on so everything is transparent and we also want to engage with the public face to face so we are organizing workshops with university students and that's actually how we expanded our impact so we go to different cities in the country and we take applications from university students and they apply and they um for a 6 hours workshop we introduce them to our methodology like what is fact checking why it's important to perform that mission in in our country and what are the tools to be doing so and here is the methodology that we use and then and at the very end we ask them to find a political statement and fact check it by the end of the workshop and each workshop we demand university students to voluntarily you know contribute to us and we are really glad actually that the university students are really keen to do so you know we have a lot of university students what are they studying what, what faculties is it mainly journalism yes it's uh, mostly journalism or political science but you'll never know you know like they would be coming from a complete different background like they wouldn't be studying politics or journalism but they would just want to learn and do it and contribute to us So we have now a lot of university students that are you know voluntarily sending us articles you know they would you know take the initiative to um do what we are doing so that it will be also published on our website as well and I'm I'm really glad that we have such a cooperation between the students and us. Um I also wanted to ask you um about point Do you have any takeaways from the conference or is there anything special about the conference that you would like to share for you? Yes. Well, uh for me personally, it's my first time that I have been invited to an international conference, so I'm uh, really glad and I I want to thank you once again for your invitation. And it was a great opportunity for me to um hear what others has to say, you know, because when you think about it in your country when you're doing your you know like daily routine you feel like it's it's only you that is going through those processes and it is it feels like it's only your country that is you know like facing with those problems but when you participate to international organizations and you know conferences like this you get to hear really interesting and really valuable stories from different people and it, it's really good to get to know uh different people that are that have you know the same goals as you but they also have for example different stories or different tools so you get to learn from them as well so uh, i think it's it's really val- valuable that what you're doing and do you have any wishes for the fact checking community around the world like what would be your your wish what could get better if you could change a couple of things Well, um not to change, but I would say it would be better to um make it a more interdisciplinary effort. Like I as I mentioned earlier, I would say we need more cooperation with uh 
different groups, you know, in the society. It would be better, for example, if fact checkers coordinated with actual, like, newspapers. I know there are some examples from it uh, in different countries, but in Turkey it's not the case now. And it seems like it can't be the case, but I think it would be more efficient if, for example, academia, the fact checkers, and... The actual jur- journalists can, you know, like cooperate because I think in that way it would be more efficient. Okay, great. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It it has been a pleasure for me as well.